Hi, this is Steve Addison and you're listening to the Movements Podcast, the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're in Singapore speaking to Neele Sayer about his research into why Christian movements rise and why they decline and fall. I am originally from the United States. I was born and raised into a Christian home. My parents are originally from India. They emigrated to the U.S. back in the 1970s. So I kind of uh, grew up in an evangelical culture, raised in the church. And um, three years ago, I moved to Singapore to take up a teaching post here. So I think uh, my interest in religion and politics stems uh, largely from my own background in the faith. Now, for most of my um, professional career, I worked on issues related to religious violence like terrorism and um, social hostilities involving religion. Um, after 9-11, I became very interested in terrorism. So I spent a lot of time working on, you know, what kinds of countries experience terrorism? What can policymakers do to prevent terrorism? But in the last few years or so, I've kind of uh, moved into the area of sociology of religion, mm-hmm. kind of drawing on my own Christian faith. And uh, what, what was the big idea behind the article you wrote on the relationship between Christianity and sort of political power and cultural power? Yeah, so the major takeaway from this article is that the most important determinant of Christian decline is government support for Christianity, right? So in the field of sociology of religion, we kind of have two explanations for why religions grow or decline in numbers. So the first explanation is the so-called secularization thesis. And this is the idea that with scientific discovery and education and and, and so on, you, you will see the decline of religious faith. And over time, it might disappear altogether. Well, it turns out that the secularization thesis was incorrect. Uh, Religion didn't go away. And in some places, religion is uh, more popular than ever. Um, So more recently, there's been an update to the secularization thesis, and this is known as cultural modernization theory. And so the cultural modernization theorists Uh, They would acknowledge that scientific discovery and technology and education hasn't spelled religion's demise. But what they would argue is that uh, religion's growth or decline is tied to how wealthy a country is, right? Mm -hmm. So the more wealthy a country is, the more likely it is to see uh, a decline in the number of religious believers. So these are the kind of two main explanations for why religions grow or, or decline in their numbers. And so what I'm doing in this article is I'm showing, well, these explanations might have some merits, but the most important determinant of Christian growth and decline is how closely Christianity is tied to the state. Um, but in this paper, I'm looking specifically at how the government treats Christianity. Does the government treat Christians better than non-Christians? Does the government discriminate against Christians? So those are the kinds of issues that I'm looking at here. Uh, So the three paradoxes are the paradox of pluralism, the paradox of privilege, and the paradox of persecution. So the first paradox, the paradox of pluralism. 
And what I mean here is not that there is an equal amount of different religious traditions represented in society. So, you know, 25% Christian, 25% Muslim, 25% Hindu, 25% atheist. That's not what I mean by pluralism. What I mean by pluralism is that the government treats religions more or less equally. So there's an Uh, There's a level playing field in society, and these different religious traditions have to compete on an equal playing field. And so what I argue about pluralism is that the higher the government commitment to pluralism, the more likely it is that Christianity is going to grow in numbers, right? And so uh, I go through the different countries that I look at, and I find that the strongest growth of Christianity today is occurring on the continent of Africa. Hmm. And, uh, you know, this is perhaps a little surprising. Uh, And it's not because Africans are somehow more religious than uh, those outside of Africa. But what I find very interestingly is that in sub-Saharan Africa, these contexts are actually uh, the most pluralistic in the sense that the government doesn't discriminate against Christianity, but it also doesn't partner with Christianity. So all the different faith traditions in these countries have to compete with each other. And that kind of brings out uh, uh, the, the best in religious traditions. And isn't that one reason for the dynamism of Christianity in in U in the U.S. or on the U.S. frontier, and the, the where there were another competing face, and Christianity generally was favoured, but all sorts of groups and denominations and revivals could spring. There's a free market, you know, <laughs> of ideas. That's, yes, and it yes. actually led to quite a vibrant form of Christianity that uh, really turned around uh, any slump that you would have seen from people coming out of a European background. Absolutely, that's right. And uh, it's interesting because the United States was the one advanced industrial country in the world that seemed to buck this trend of secularization, right? Mm. It wasn't becoming a more secular country. And I think uh, two things. Number one is the constitution of the United States which prevents any formal establishment of religion. This is found in the very first amendment of the Bill of Rights, the Constitution. So there's no formal establishment of religion, and the Constitution also provides for religious freedom. So in the context of the United States, uh, I think what we see is this kind of intra-Christian pluralism, right? Mm -hmm. Where there's a lot of different Christian denominations competing for market share, and this kind of brings out the best in uh, Christianity and and keeps Christianity strong and vibrant. Mm. And the whole argument here goes back to the work of the economist Adam Smith. And uh, even though Smith was an economist, he argued that competition is good for everything, right? Competition is good not only for business, it's good for religion. And he discusses religion in his book, Wealth of Nations, but it can also be good for sports, for academics. Uh, So uh, we shouldn't necessarily be too surprised that context of pluralism, where Christianity has to compete on a level playing field with other faith traditions, is a good thing for all religious faith. So the next P is the paradox of privilege, paradox of privilege. So uh, one thing that I note is that nine of the 10 countries that are seeing the sharpest declines in Christianity offer moderate or high levels of support for Christianity. 
so moderate or high levels of support. What that means is that the level of support is above the global average. And so just as pluralism stimulates religion, uh, privilege has the opposite effect. It suppresses religion. And uh, just as government interference in the market suppresses an economy, the same thing happens in the so-called religious economy. So um, where churches are supported by the state, they become lackadaisical. They don't necessarily have to compete for converts. They, are, they, they have a leg up on the competition. And so this ends up hurting the religious landscape across the board. And one example of that, of a classic example, is really Britain and Europe, isn't it? Where there's hundreds of years of history of state support of religion, and yet uh, overwhelming decline in, in those parts of the world, of the Christian faith. Yep, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, and we see it in Britain, to be sure, where... Um, the, the Church of England has special privileges with the state, but it's actually a continent-wide phenomenon. You know, we can see it in the Protestant states of Scandinavia. We see it in the, the Catholic majority states in the 20th century, uh, Portugal, Italy, Spain. And uh, most prominently today, we see it in the Eastern Orthodox countries of Eastern Europe. And these countries in Eastern Europe have the tightest integration between Christianity and the state. So mm. it's a continent-wide phenomenon. So the way uh, I define pluralism is that the government treats all religions roughly the same. Mm. And in the case of privilege, the government is treating Christians better the non-Christians. They get special favor with the state. In the case of persecution, what I mean is that the government treats Christians worse than other than the dominant faith tradition. So this is a very common arrangement in the Islamic world, for example. And so the main finding here is that as a as, as the level of persecution increases, uh, it really has no effect on the Christian faith. So we would expect to see that as government persecution of Christians increases, that the number of Christians would decline. And that doesn't necessarily appear to be the case. Now, uh, I should mention a couple of caveats here. Number one is that I'm looking specifically at nonviolent persecution of Christians. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking specifically at how the government treats Christianity, right? Uh, but obviously, like you mentioned, if there's instances of widespread killing of Christians, uh, the Armenian genocide, for example, or you know, what's going on in Iraq today, uh, then we would expect, of course, the number of Christians to decline. So back in 2003, uh, the number of Christians in Iraq was about 1.5 million, okay? And the number of Christians in Iraq today is about 250,000. And uh, those believers have you know, been killed by terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda in Iraq or ISIS, or they've been forced to flee to other countries. Uh, so it's a very, it's a very sad situation. And, uh, you know, I don't think that we should in any way attempt to glamorize persecution. Yes. Yeah. I think that uh, Christians have a responsibility to speak out against religious persecution wherever it occurs. Um, if it's against Christians, if it's against non-Christians, I think that, you know, we should come together against uh, persecution. But it's a very curious finding, right? And I, it's a kind of a peculiarity of Christianity that it doesn't go away, right? We yeah. know from the scriptures that um, the Christian 
faith spread very rapidly in the face of persecution by the Roman Empire. And we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that uh, persecution doesn't have its intended effect. Christianity continues to uh, show extraordinary uh, resilience in a number of places. We we could apply this to the situation in the Roman Empire where, you know, early 4th century, early 300s, Constantine has some form of Christian conversion Mm-hmm. and then provides a lot more uh, favour and legal protection, but also money uh, and social power to the Christian faith. Um, and leading up to that time and following that time, the whole edge went off Christianity's sort of missionary advance. Um, I think the numbers in the church may have gone up because now you could get the rich could get a a tax deduction if they became uh-huh. uh, a, a, a minister or a priest or whatever. But, you know, in that situation, there's a clear example of, you know, everyone would have said, great, we're not being persecuted. This is an answer to prayer. But the vitality of the Christian faith went went into decline around that same era. That's absolutely right. And this is what theologians have argued, like John Howard Yoder and, and Stanley Harwas. You know, they talk about this Constantinian shift that occurred in uh, the fourth century uh, when Christianity first became legalized, but then became the official religion of the Roman Empire. I think the closest equivalent we have to what was going on in the Roman Empire is uh, what's occurring in China today. And uh, this goes back to. Uh, the Cultural Revolution launched by Mao Zedong. And the whole idea here was that in order to kind of cement communism in society, that he would uh, attack all of communism's enemies. And that, of course, would include religion. So Christianity was forced to go underground. Uh, But, you know, as the work of uh, sociologist Fengang Yang shows uh, at Purdue University, Christianity continued to grow even uh, through the persecution of the communist regime of Mao Zedong. And uh, so that by today, almost 5% of the country is Christian. That's 50 million Christians in China that have endured uh, through this persecution and they formed underground churches. They kept the faith alive. And he predicts that Christianity will continue to grow in China exponentially. Mm. And uh, of course, you know, we're seeing the same thing in Iran. It's very difficult to put a precise figure on the number of Christians in Iran. Uh, I think uh, I, I would say it's something like a million Christians. But it could be even more. Um, we, we just don't know because a lot of these Christians are um, they're converts and they can't practice their faith openly or they're part of underground churches. So it's very difficult to know exactly how many Christians are in a country like Iran or Afghanistan for that matter. But what we do know is that Christianity is growing in these locations. And that's something that's been confirmed by missionaries in, in these countries as well. Well, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. Uh, There's certainly a lot of uh, Persians who are turning to Christ Uh once they get out of the country, but there seems to be a real groundswell in in Iran and certainly in in, uh, places like China, but also very different uh, country just next door in India. 
you know, there are amazing advances going on in the midst of increasing persecution from Hindu nationalists. Um, the, the situation in India is uh, very bad right now mm. for Christians because they're experiencing persecution at two different levels. There's the persecution in the form of um, anti-conversion laws and the like at the state level, which uh, essentially prevent Christians from practicing their faith. They're not able to attempt to uh, proselytize to non-Christians. Um, so there's there, there are legal uh, statutes that work against Christianity, but also at the society level, Christians are subjected to violence by Hindu nationalists, and uh, Christians are being killed in India on a routine basis. So it's a very difficult situation. But at the same time, uh, we see that Christianity is uh, continuing to defy the odds, and uh, it's not losing members of the Christian faith. Um, but by and large, uh, Higher levels of anti-Christian discrimination in the world do not lead to Christian decline. Well, I think for the Christian, what it means is that we have to shun the temptation to marry the power of the church with the power of the state. And this goes back to the teachings of Jesus. You know, Jesus lived in politically hot times, and yet he never weighed in on the political issues of the day. Uh, he always pointed back to the kingdom of God, and he gave his followers a different kind of political community. Um, and we know that today as the church. So I think this is kind of a model for Christians. You know, we don't have to fear. Uh, we don't have to try and capture the institutions of the state. We simply have to exist as the church. And uh, I think that would be more in line with the teachings of Christ than what we see happening around the world in Christian-majority countries today. So take in, uh, Europe, for example. So in a number of these European countries, we see a renewed kind of Christian identitarianism, uh, Christian civilizationalism. Uh, we see this in countries like uh, Austria and Hungary, Poland, Slovenia, France, and various other states. And I, if my research is correct and my analysis is correct, we would expect to see the further erosion and decline of Christianity uh, on the European continent. And what we're seeing right now is that Christian decline in Europe is outpacing population decline. So we know that the general populations of these countries are experiencing uh, decline because of low fertility rates. But what's interesting is that Christianity is outpacing that general population decline. And if the argument is correct, we would expect this uh, trend to continue in Europe. So it swings, in that sense, it's swinging to the extreme right where we're going to impose Christian morality by capturing political power and Christian nationalism. I think, though, it swings to the left as well because most of those state churches in Europe and in Britain that are seeing much greater decline than other Christian traditions. They've swung over to align themselves with, you know, corporate capitalism, with the whole woke agenda. Uh, they're pro-choice. They've moved away from a biblical understanding of sex and marriage. So they've actually, the ones that are in most dramatic decline in Europe uh, tend to, align themselves with the cultural power, which is ultimately expressed in uh, political power. Do you, do you think mm -hmm. that's correct? 
Yeah, I think it's a very important point to note that this isn't necessarily a partisan left-right issue. You know, Christianity can be tied to the Christian right or Mm. the Christian left. But it's not just a left-right issue because back in the early 1900s, there was the social gospel movement, Mm. which was kind of back then the the mirror of the Christian right today. And the social gospel movement was motivated by more progressive causes, but the method was the same. Uh, that movement sought to uh, advance the kingdom of God through the power of the state, just like we're seeing today. And the result there was the erosion of those uh, liberal churches in terms of membership, and they declined precipitously. And, uh, you know, those liberal churches in the United States are kind of in the same position as the liberal churches in Europe today. So on both sides of politics, what they do, they actually mirror each other. They've got the same flaw that says, I think it's not just political power, but we want cultural and political power as a way of changing people rather than the gospel and discipleship. We will impose this whether we're left-wing or right-wing. We're now seeing the kingdom of God uh, being expressed by us capturing uh, cultural and political power. That's the fundamental flaw of Christians on both sides of politics. That's right. And it's uh, kind of paradoxical when you think about it, because Christians who make this argument that they need to capture political power, that they need to take their countries back for God, are essentially saying that their arguments for Christ aren't strong enough to stand on their own. And they need the support of the state in order to advance the kingdom of God, rather than using the uh, model that Christ himself gave to his followers. Mm. Okay, so if uh, tomorrow we read the news headlines that uh, that the, the chairman of the Communist Party of China has had a wonderful conversion, we would mm. celebrate for him, but fear for the church in China. Is that right? Potentially. I think it would depend on how the church responded to mm. that event. It would also depend on you know, whether the Chinese government then went from persecuting Christians uh, to supporting Christianity over other faith traditions. So, um, you know, it's, it's possible that in a case like that, um, maybe the church renounces privilege with the state. Maybe it keeps its distance, its prophetic distance from the state. Uh, it's a possibility. But if we see Christianity become politically empowered and privileged, then you know we could expect to see the same thing that happened in the Roman Empire. Say, so if well, we not only got a, a Christian leader of the Communist Party or whatever it would be called then, but we're going to put money into pastors' salaries. We're going to build buildings. You know. We're going to give you free airtime on television. All of these things actually undermine the vitality of the Christian faith. Uh, They're meant to be, uh, instead of trying to capture those those places of power, they should be on about the gospel and making disciples. I think initially what you would see in a case like that is that Christianity would actually grow. 
and mm-hmm. it would flourish just like it did in the Roman Empire after Constantine's conversion. But eventually what happened is you saw the corruption of the faith, uh, uh, Christianity renouncing its most fundamental teachings. And I think, you know, in that kind of situation, you would expect to see the same thing happen. What are some predictions of the trends we're currently seeing? What do you think is going to happen in different spots around the world? Yeah, we're going to see the further shift in the landscape of Christianity from the west to the east and from the north to the south. I think we're going to see the continued expansion of Christianity in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Uh, So today, Africa is the world's most Christian continent. It has 700 million Christians. Mm. And uh, what I find in the study is that the 10 Christian majority countries that have seen the greatest increase in Christianity are all located in Africa, every single one. And uh, I think that we would expect to see Christianity grow in most of these countries. Now, there are some troubling signs in Africa. because you see this temptation everywhere. It's not just in Europe or the United States. There's always this temptation that, you know, Christianity needs to enjoy the favor of the state. It needs to take uh, the country for God and, and so on and so forth. And we see that happening in places like Uganda and, and Zambia. Um, but if these churches in Africa can keep their principal distance from the state, I think we would expect to see Christianity continue to grow. Um, so Latin America, uh, has also experienced very strong Christian, uh, growth. And I think what we see in Latin America is kind of an intra-Christian pluralism that's taken root. So it's not necessarily that, you know, Christians are competing against non-Christians or Muslims or Hindus or anything like that. But what you do see is Catholics and Protestants and Pentecostals and Evangelicals and all of them have to compete for market share in Latin America. And that's helped keep all these different uh, Christian traditions vibrant. And then finally in Asia, uh, we see contexts of persecution in places like um, China and India but also Pakistan and um, Southeast Asia. If my findings and research are correct, we would not necessarily expect to see the decline of Christianity as a result of this, but because there aren't too many contexts of pluralism in Asia, uh, we wouldn't necessarily expect to see high rates of Christian growth in some of these countries either. Um, One country in Asia where we've seen stunning growth besides China is South Korea. And I would argue that the reason is because South Korea has this context of pluralism where Christianity enjoys no special favor from the state. It has to compete with other religious traditions. And yet Christianity has been growing uh, over the last 100 years. So 100 years ago, South Korea was pretty much devoid of Christianity altogether. And today, one third of the country is Christian. Well, thanks for listening. Visit movements.net to find out more about the articles that uh, Nile has written and his book entitled Weapon of Peace, How Religious Liberty Combats Terrorism. I'm Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast.